Ready? I was born ready. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Aquademia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Loughlin. I'm Justin Grant. And I'm Maddie Cassidy. And this is the second part of our- Part two. Species spotlight on tilapia. I told you this was a big topic with a lot to talk about. So we sat down with Steve Hart today to talk about a little bit more about how tilapia is farmed, what's going on in the market, and how it's being affected by these crazy tariffs that have been put on Chinese imports from the U.S. So it's having a really big effect. Steve spends a lot of time in Asia. And when he's in Asia, he is on the ground with these people who are actually growing these fish and producing these fish. So he knows, he has a firsthand account of how these changes are affecting the people. So it was really interesting. Yeah, it was really profound to hear what he had to say. And it's, I'm glad that he was able to come on and pass along the message of these producers who are being so severely impacted by this situation. Yeah, for sure. So it's a good talk. And I hope you enjoy it. But we obviously have some regular housekeeping to do beforehand. So remember, if you want to talk to us, you want to send us anything. We actually got an email yesterday where someone is sending us a product for us to try. I won't give away what it is because we'll probably talk about it on the air when it comes in. But if you want to send us some fun or tasty drinks, yeah. (laughs) Uh, go ahead and email us at podcast at aquaculturealliance.org and we will always get back to you. You can also send in topic requests or people you'd like to hear as guests on the show or anything like that. Or you can call and say, hey, I hate the way your voice sounds, <laughs> to which I will say, sorry. Not much we can do <laughs> yeah, about that. with this voice. Can't help that. <laughs> <laughs> you can also talk to us on Twitter. It's at AquademiaPod or you can find me specifically. It's at SJ Olaflin, but you don't need to do that. You can just talk to me through the Aquademia Podcast one. And then lastly, you can actually leave us a voice message at 1-603-384-3560 and we respond to all voice messages and emails and we're hoping that someday we'll be able to bring all of these together and play some of your voicemails on the show. Yeah. Make sure also to leave us a review. Give us a five-star rating. We want to be able to push this information out to more people, and that's the best way to do that. People like to look at other reviews to see if this is something they're interested in. So please feel free to do that. It only takes a few minutes, and it greatly helps us. Yeah, and if you'd like some extra bonus audio content or educational materials, interesting media, data, analytics, that kind of stuff, then you can become a member of the Global Aquaculture Alliance, and you can do that at aquaculturealliance.org slash membership. I know we talk about this every episode and people probably get sick of hearing it, but <laughs> this is kind of like the lifeblood of a podcast. This is how they, how running a podcast works. You know, it's not like a TV show where you, you release episodes and then it brings money in. We're giving out information and the way that we get supported is by getting more and more listeners. And the way that you get more and more listeners is by ratings and reviews and people supporting us through membership and things like that. So I know it kind of seems like we're probably badgering you and pounding you in the head with this information and telling you to do all this stuff all the time. But you know, that interaction is really the lifeblood of our show. So we really appreciate everyone that interacts with us and helps us out and gives us advice and topics and criticisms and all this stuff. So we really appreciate you listening. And I hope you enjoy this talk with Steve because it is really super interesting. It's not that political, even though it sounds like it could be. I promise you it's not. But there's some good stuff in here. So make sure you listen to the whole thing. And we'll talk to you at the end. You guys ready? Let's talk about seafood. Seafood. 
Welcome to the Aquademia podcast. Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. I mean, we desperately need to eat more seafood. This is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are unafraid. Aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood. We're sitting down with Steve Hart, who is, what's your title, Steve? Uh, Vice President in charge of business development in Asia. That's right. Your your title has changed a couple of times since you've been here as well. <laughs> yeah, right? a few times. I think a lot of us have gone through a bunch of changes. So, um, <laughs> so this is the second part of our species spotlight on tilapia. And Steve is. We decided to have Steve come on because he's the man that spends a lot. You know, he spends a lot of time on the ground out in Asia working with the producers themselves and the marketplace in. Asia, China, Japan, primarily, correct? Yeah, uh, so I do a couple different things, but work with the marketplace in China and Japan, but then also, as you said, work a lot directly with the producing side of the industry as well and and do a lot of meetings and visits with farmers, uh, especially in China. Yeah, so he knows what's going on in the world, especially with tilapia, since it's one of the biggest products that come out of China for seafood and for aquaculture particularly. So... We wanted to have you on, Steve, to talk about current events and talk a little more about the species so people can learn about how it's raised and kind of what's going on with it. And so we're recording this in early June 2019. So this is the time when there were new tariffs put out by the U.S. president that are on Chinese products. So um, it's big news for a lot of industries and the seafood industry is no different. And who better to talk about that than Steve Hart? Yep. So let's get into let's before we get into that, that's, you know, that's going to be a big chunk of this conversation. But before we get into that, let's go back to the fish itself, like we did with Denise and talk about where it comes from and how it's raised. What are the farm practices? Get people comfortable with understanding where that fish comes from when it's on their plate. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, no problem, Sean. Tilapia is a really interesting species, and I know you talked a lot about this with Denise in, in the last podcast, but you know it's grown all around the world, and it you know, originally came from Africa, but it's such a great species for farming that it's been spread all around to basically any warm tropical climate that fish farming has really taken off in, you'll find tilapia there. So if you look at where the U.S. gets its tilapia from, you know, China obviously is the, is the big player, but if you look at the numbers, it's coming from all over Southeast Asia. And also we get a lot of tilapia that comes in from Latin America. So the, the market is very diverse when it comes to where we're receiving product. But if you go and look at the largest volume product we get is frozen tilapia. And uh, when it comes to frozen tilapia, you know, China is king in that regard. If you look at the numbers that came in in 2018, as the year ended, China was by far the largest supplier of frozen tilapia. They ended the year at 248 plus million pounds of frozen tilapia from mainland China. It's a lot of tilapia. Yes, it is. (laughs) That's almost always what I go for is the frozen fillets. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's a great product for, for, it holds up well uh, through freezing and it's easy to thaw out and and bring home and prepare. Uh, so it's, it's really has been kind of a, a wonder fish, but you know, unfortunately since 2015, when it was at its peak, we've seen a real downward trend with tilapia. Why do you think that is? Any ideas? 
Yeah, I got yeah, I got a lot of ideas, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> got some but, opinions, some and, ideas. Well, one of the main problems that Sloppy runs into, and you kind of highlighted this a little bit, is it's a white fish, and so it's competing against all the other white fish that's on the market. So you mm. got catfish, you got pangasius, you've got all the different wild caught species, mm-hmm. cod and pollock. So a tilapia is not at all differentiated from those other products. So it's going to just fall into a price point battle with any other white fish that's out there. You know, most customers don't go to the store thinking I'm going to buy tilapia or they don't go to a restaurant and think I'm going to get tilapia. They go and they think mm, I might get a fish sandwich. I need to eat a little healthier. Or they go into the market and say, I, I need to buy some, I need to eat a little healthier. I'm going to buy some fish and oh, here's tilapia. Okay. I'm going to try that. Or, or here's pangasius. It's cheaper. I'm going to get that. So it just really depends on a lot of it's on pricing where the current price points are at and that's how consumers are going to make their decision and you know there's no brand recognition with tilapia it's not like you know, yeah. people recognize salmon and think oh well salmon i know this is healthy for me i'm going to buy salmon yeah that, that De- denise got into that too that's yep. pretty interesting yeah um has price gone up in the since 2015 since its peak uh you know price has fluctuated and and it's been i wouldn't say it's gone up it's gone you know it's, it's gone through some cycles and yeah. you know it was at about i think a dollar 80 for frozen fillets at the end of 2018 it, it spiked up to just under two dollars early 2019 and then plummeted and now we're back to getting close to that dollar 80 point so it, it fluctuates a lot right around that dollar 80 dollar 90 right now okay so let's talk about, you know, when, when we were speaking with Denise, we talked a lot about tilapia is being farmed here, tilapia is being farmed there. Farming tilapia is really important, but we didn't actually talk about that process and how it's farmed and how it's raised. Can you go into that a little bit? Because I think some of our listeners might, you know, some people might be picturing tilapia farm as raceways or really big tanks or cages out in the ocean and you know there there's so many different ways to raise different species of fish so how how do they raise tilapia in these larger markets yeah um yeah, good question and there's uh, a couple different production practices but the two most common are pond production and then inland lakes and net pens. And when we go and look at the biggest country that's producing tilapia China they, they produce you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of a million metric tons per year, which is a lot of tilapia. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that, it's a lot of fish. <laughs> yeah, and it's more than that. It's, it's closer to 1.3. But right. they, it's crazy when you think about it because this is not a big fish. Exactly. Uh, when you look at a tilapia as a whole fish, I mean, it's like less than 12 inches long, right? I mean, yes. this is a yep. small fish. Yeah. Yeah, and that's uh, 1.3 million metric tons, yep, in one country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but China, the largest producer, most of their production is pond. Um, so these, and these tend to be, you know, fairly smaller ponds. And some of the production is also happening in freshwater reservoirs with net pens. But I think the really important thing to note here is any tilapia that ends up in the U.S. market has pretty strict production practices. And the reason I say that is the market in the U.S. requires it. You go to any of the big retailers, Walmarts, the Kroger's, Publix, whoever, they they all have sourcing requirements and they want these farms and these processing plants audited to these requirements. So that's really, when you go and visit these tilapia farms in China, you'd be hard pressed to find any farms anywhere in the world that are doing anything better than what these farms are doing. 
These are, for the most part, state-of-the-art farms. Their production practices are a little different. Here in the, in the West, where labor costs are high, we tend to use a little more automation, uh, mm. especially when it comes to feeding. We tend to use a lot of automated feeders in the West, whereas in China, labor is a lot cheaper, so they still tend to use quite a bit hand feeding. But overall, the, the production practices are among the best in the world. And I think people just don't really understand when they see you know, something farmed in another country that they're not familiar with and don't really have any knowledge about. I think they immediately assume, well, oh, this country is not as developed as the U.S., so their production practices must not be as good as the U.S. But that's just simply not true. Yeah, we talked about that actually quite a bit with Denise, too. Uh, super interesting. She brought up the point that, you know, the word industrial is not a bad thing. And we were talking about, well, these farms that are doing this big industrial output, the, those are the ones that have the money to be able yeah, to do I things right. I, I, you know, I, I guess I would have a little bit different opinion on that than maybe what Denise does. And, you know, and, and again, I don't see anything wrong with the word industrial. I mean, that's the U.S. built its uh, economy on industry. So, you know, who, you know it's, a, it's, a, it's a great word if you're into, you know, <laughs> free markets and yeah, economic growth. But yeah, these companies in, in China and all throughout Asia are, are large companies. I, I agree with that. But when you get down to the actual farm level production, that mm-hmm. these are not large industrial companies per se. These are small family farms. And when you go and buy a bag of frozen tilapia from Kroger or Walmart, you're supporting a small family farm because ultimately none of that industry works without the producers and the, the people who are actually growing the fish. And those people are, they're not all that different than, than, than we are in terms of they wanna have a career, they wanna make a little bit of money, they wanna set aside some money for their kids and their, their families. And a lot of times you'll, you'll see the whole family on the farm. So yeah, it's a big industry, but the at the production level, you've got very small farms. and. Those farms, even though they're small, still use, you know, the, like I mentioned earlier, they're still their production practices are phenomenal. And uh, you know, a lot of times I think that's because it is a family business and those families take pride in what they're doing. And, and like you said, they, they have to. Exactly. If they want to sell into the U.S. market, they're not going to be allowed to do that unless they have these best practices. Exactly. And when you get, when you get to the farm level, you, you hear all these numbers thrown around about how big the industry is, and I mentioned, you know, 1.3 million metric tons of production in China for tilapia, but the average farm size is probably somewhere around the neighborhood of 250 metric tons. Really small farms. <laughs> you can do the math. I, I don't yeah, have my so- calculator out, but if you divide 1.3 million by 250, uh, you'll see how many farms there are in China. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you just look at a map, I mean, when I was working with BAP, we used to check the locations um, of these farms on the, from their applications on the satellite on Google Earth. Yep. And once you get into the area where these farms are, it's unbelievable yeah. to see just hectares and hectares of ponds lined up. Exactly. It's, it's amazing to see. It really is. It's pretty cool. And some of these companies, you know, they, they own their own farms as well. And, and, you know, those companies will have much bigger farms, you know, I, you know so maybe they'll have a couple thousand uh, metric tons of production per year. But, you know, they also then buy a lot of their product from those family farms as well. Mm-hmm. And even those companies that have their own farming, uh, that they own their own farms, they still do a lot of work with the, the local labor force that, you know, those those people working there may have come from a family farm and they wanted to keep working in the industry. So now they're working for one of these larger farms as well. So 
it's really a it's a, a great story about you know these communities that come together to get into agriculture and much like you look at north america where our communities have come together for crops or livestock agriculture uh in china they've come together for aquaculture it's, it's not all that different mm-hmm. yeah it's just, just something about america we're just so behind with seafood i don't understand it why do you think people in the West are so they they are so quick to kind of dismiss or assume a certain quality coming from markets in Asia? Do you have any ideas about that? Well, I, I think there's several reasons. One, and just go on and look at you know, go on social media and, and hear all the negative stories. I mean, yeah. you start hearing negative stories, you start to believe them. You know, perception's reality, unfortunately. Uh, so I think that's a part of it, but. There's also, it's, if you've tried a fish product you didn't like and it came from a country and like, oh, well, I don't like fish from that country. I mean, I think there's some of that and people uh, are very hesitant to try new things and if they have a bad experience one time, they won't try it again. And that's really unfortunate because, you know, the industry has just improved so much over the last 10, 15 years. Yeah. And, you know, the, the product quality now, you know, tends to be very, very, very high. Well, and you can't generalize seafood like you can generalize chicken or beef you know if you have chicken and say uh i I really did not like that then you can (laughs) i mean there are different ways you can prepare chicken but chicken is is chicken seafood can't be represented by one species exactly yeah and the unfortunate thing especially with china and i think the biggest thing that's impacting this right now is just all the rhetoric that we're hearing between the governments and you know people are hearing a lot of negative messaging from the very top and i think they're buying into it yeah people that have the biggest platforms are spreading some of the most misinformation uh that's what we're seeing a lot of right now so that's actually a really good transition captain transition steve hart (laughs) very well done (laughs) that's a good transition into current events can i get a name card with that I will I will gladly get you I'm a, taking notes. I will get you one business card that says Captain Transition Steve. Perfect. Um, <laughs> and now my train is derailed. Um, yes, let's talk about what's going on right now. Can yeah. you walk us through from the beginning what happened with these tariffs and what's happening now and what effect it's starting to have over there because you've been speaking to producers in China about this specifically and how it's affecting them. Oh, for over a year, yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll get to where we're at right now, but let's let's back up about a year. Yes, please do. On the tariffs first started to hit, and it's 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 such a chaotic situation right now because yeah, I came from a world where I did a lot of work uh, politically before I came to GAA, and it was a fairly predictable world. You kind of knew what to expect. You kind of knew what you, definitely based on administration and whether they were left or right, you kind of knew what to expect. You understood the trends by then. You understood the trends and you knew how to message what you were looking for to the person you were talking to, whether or not they were uh, left or right. It didn't matter. You knew how to message it. It's almost like it was like a civilized world where people understood how to talk to each other. Exactly. And treat each other. <laughs> and Imagine that. having said that, things have changed radically. And last year I was asked to come to to go to China and give a presentation about uh, this very topic. They were, they were really interested in the global feed markets and I worked for the feed industry before I came to GAA and I had to submit my talk a week before the presentation so they could translate it to Chinese and that one week before everything was very positive the trade talks were going really well 
everyone was saying the trade war was going to be over by by last June, so June 2018. And I sent my talk in with some notes in there about the trade war. And in that seven days between me submitting my talk and then giving my presentation, everything went south. And the governments were throwing back rhetoric back and forth to each other. And, you know, so I got up there and, and my slide popped up that was talking about the trade war and everybody in the room kind of laughed because they realized you know, the, it was totally different. It changed yeah. in just seven days. That type of unpredictability wasn't there before. Before you could kind of predict what was gonna happen. So at that point we were dealing with 10% tariffs. And with the 10% tariffs, the producers and the, in China and then the suppliers on the US side, you know, the buyers, they, they ate up that cost. Uh, it got ate up in the supply chain. So. We didn't really see anything get passed on to the consumer at that point. Prices didn't really change the consumer. It hurt definitely on the farm side, it definitely hurt, but it wasn't having a massive driving people out of the industry type of impact. Can you just quick, for any listeners who might not quite understand how that works, can you just explain kind of how the tariff, adding a tariff onto an incoming good, how that has Basically like a tax that has to be paid when the product comes into the port of entry. So that 10% So it's just going to make the price per pound go up. Exactly. By like, what, a few cents, depending on what the tariff is? or Yeah, yeah. So if you're dealing with, uh, you know, a eighty. So 10% of $1.80 would be 18 cents. Right, okay. But at 10% tariff, we, we weren't seeing a drastic panic. We were seeing that the industry could, could figure out how to deal with it. We saw you know, a couple, especially in China, I, I saw a couple of my friends uh, that I've been working with for a long time. They got out of the business. I know some sold, a, I, in particular, one person sold their processing plant for real estate because it was more valuable as real wow. estate property than it was as a processing plant. Wow. Um, we were seeing some of that, but it wasn't it wasn't panic mode. Mm. As the, the trade negotiations kept going on and, and didn't appear to be improving at all, we actually saw at the end of 2018 a pretty massive uptick of tilapia imports in the US. And that was primarily because originally the 25% tariff was supposed to come in January. So there was this big push to get as much tilapia into the U.S. as possible before that new tariff hit. But now that tariff obviously didn't happen in, in January. So what we ended up seeing is probably oversupply of tilapia in the market. So the, the demand dropped. And the beginning of 2019 has just been really, really tough for, for tilapia as we've seen a, a drastic decline in demand. And now all of a sudden this tariff hits. Now we're at 25%. And it's huge. It is huge. That is a huge change. Yeah. You know, now we're looking at the only way that type of cost can can be accepted by the supply chains is if it gets passed on to the consumer. There's no way supply chains can absorb a 25% tariff. Because now we're looking at instead of 18 cents, you know, what's what's 25% of buck 80? We're, we're dealing with probably closer to 40 cents somewhere in that neighborhood, that can't be absorbed by the supply chain. So consumer well, to pay that. And you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast and how tilapia being a, a white fish is competing with all these other white fish kind of gets lumped together, maybe because of its mild taste and its price point. And then if you start putting these taxes on it and that price point goes up to where a consumer who just wants, yeah, I, I want to eat healthy. I'm going to have a white fish. And they're now comparing it. It's a price point piece. That's a that's a huge hit for tilapia. We eat it because it's so cheap, and 
you know, because of that mild taste, the kids like it and get exactly. my wife on board. And so now this is this changes the ball game. But yeah. like we talked about, it's it is a small fish. So if you're buying a small package of a few fillets, how much additional is that actually going to add on if it's price per pound versus if it were to be a tariff on something that is a much larger fish like salmon or or haddock or something that where 25% of a one and a half pound fish is a lot different than like a four pound fish, you know, so it's, it's all, it's, it's a different balance, but that's tilapia's best selling point here in the West, I feel like is because it is in competition with all these other similar white fish. It's best selling point is, is the price. Exactly. And that, that is something that we can talk about that here in a minute. Well, I'll give you some of my thoughts on that. But when we do look at tilapia right now, and, and I mentioned that in 2019 so far it's just been a it's been kind of a bloodbath total tilapia imports of frozen fillets are down 32 percent year to date Uh, so it's a huge that's a hit uh, yeah it's a huge hit and most of that is a result of reduced demand from from china so we, we already are seeing a massive impact in the marketplace and this is before the tariffs hit this these numbers are you know the last month we have numbers for our march so yeah i i don't know for sure what the impact of a 25% terrible have on those numbers, but we already see a significant downward trend. And now we're adding on another cost into the production chain. So I can only imagine it's going to decrease more. And I know that the producers I've talked to have been really, really concerned about this. You know, so some of what, what we've done is, you know, we want to work directly with the producers and encourage them and help them any way we can to look at other markets. Where can they go? Are there other markets that you know will be looking for tilapia? You know, U.S. is the biggest market for sure. Uh, other than you know, China is a pretty big market as well. But the tilapia that's eaten in China tends to be at a very low cost because there's just a lot of the product sold live, and mm-hmm. it's it's really sold cheap. So the producers who are selling into the Chinese market aren't making money either. They don't yeah. want to sell. Yeah, they, they'd rather sell it overseas. Exactly. Yeah. Where you can get a little bit of value added. So trying to work with them and, and look at how can we work with them to, to develop domestic markets. And, you know, you kind of asked me this at the beginning of our conversation is what can they do to improve the standing of their product? Because no one goes and looks for tilapia. So how can the industry come together and look at some type of marketing initiative you know how can tilapia producers come together to promote tilapia and it's difficult because it's not salmon it's it's Mm. not shrimp but yeah i don't also think it's impossible there are branded tilapia products on the market that i think get a premium and get recognized by consumers as a superior quality product and i don't see that it would be impossible for tilapia producers to look at doing something similar uh, I just, I will admit it's, it'd be challenging, but you know, what are, what are the alternatives right now? They're, they've got a declining market and if they don't take some type of action, they're going to see nothing but continued declining markets. And it seems like these are the, this is the side of this industry that producers tend to be overall lacking a little bit. We talked about this as well. You know, the people who are raising these fish are really good at just that. They're farmers and their producers and they do a good job producing a good high quality product whereas the image and the marketing and the pr and all that stuff is lagging behind a little bit because i don't know why but that's that's having an impact on the perception of the fish from the consumer standpoint so how can we 
actually make that happen where people start to recognize it on the same level as salmon and shrimp? Yeah, I don't know you'd ever get to be at the same level, but uh, you know, salmon is a great example of you know, where we've seen efforts to do some marketing. You know, I think everyone would agree that Norwegian farm salmon kind of uh, has for a long time held this uh, premium image in the marketplace. And now you see the Chileans uh, farmers coming together and starting the Chilean Salmon Marketing Council. Uh, and they're now making a concerted effort to work on getting messaging about the benefits and the beautiful environment that Chilean salmon is raised in. And, you know, I think we'll have to watch to see what happens with those producers and how effective their marketing campaigns are. But, uh, you know, it's an effort to to do something. And when you look at the seafood industry as a whole, and, and not even thinking about tilapia, just seafood as a whole, I challenge you to name how many effective marketing campaigns there have been. We talk about that all the time because yeah. it's always a battle of whether it's, it's wild versus farmed or, exactly. it's or Chilean salmon versus Scottish salmon. And in order to for the business to just grow in general, it's finding that common voice of eat more of th- this. I mean, at Goal last year, there was a whole presentation on the avocado industry and how they work together to promote avocados and they're their sales are just skyrocketing. Is there anything similar from their approach that we can push into to seafood that can have a similar effect? Exactly. Yeah. Well, my question is who who does this? You know, we talk about oh, we need to get a unified voice and we need to do some marketing and and put messaging out there. Who would be the people to do that? Is it companies like GAA, like us, who are informing consumers about it? Is it the producers themselves? Are there lobbying groups that would come and advocate for it on the governmental side? Yeah, I think it's got to be a a multi-approach, a team effort, Sean. And you you brought up, you know, GAA's got its role to play. Uh, National Fisheries Institute, NFI, they have their role to play. Uh, one of my other hats I wear, I'm chairman on the Seafood Nutrition Partnership. And there is a organization that is trying to market seafood and they want people to eat more seafood. We just did a, a digital social media pilot campaign in Indianapolis that was targeted at getting uh, moms to buy more seafood and put them in the diets of their kids. There's something like 450, 500,000 moms in the Indianapolis metro area. And you know, the, the campaign was a two-month campaign, and, and we saw a significant increase in seafood sales. And now, we're, as we're looking and getting down to tilapia, which is that frozen fillet market that we've been talking about for most of this program, uh, we saw an 11% increase in frozen seafood sales in Indianapolis during that two-week campaign compared to control cities. So you can definitely have an impact. And in fact, one of the, uh, one of the campaigns that happened during that was a, a local dietitian got onto her social media account and showed how to make tilapia fish tacos. And mm. after that was on, you know, we we saw some anecdotal data that showed people went out and bought more tilapia because they wanted to try that at home. So uh, it's those type of activities and those type of marketing messages where we just come together as an industry and focus on the benefits of seafood yeah. that I think can have a big impact and help the entire industry. Yeah, just chip away at it. Exactly. Little by little. It doesn't happen overnight. Right. Yeah. So what do you think, What talking to the farmers and the producers um, in Asia, 
down on their level. What is their outlook for the future with this? Because the government that we have here in the U.S. right now that has been doing some flip-flopping with a lot of different issues. What do they think is going to happen in the future? Do they think that this will kind of fizzle out and then it, it'll it'll bounce back? Or are they nervous that it, this is going to you know just kill that trade? What is the general feel over there? Looking at China, and since that's where the major trade war is happening, yeah, you know, the Chinese are very patient and they'll play the long game and they'll look at this administration is in its third year so i think they're hoping that you know next year will be the last but even if it goes for another five years you know they'll be patient what happens with tilapia i i can't say for sure because those family farms that we talked about earlier they can't afford to be too patient because they'll go bankrupt yep right um and we we have seen a lot of tilapia farms that have gone and, and shut down or they've switched to other species and and that's you know we'll we'll see we'll see that the producers the, the big companies most of them will survive and if they have to they'll start uh, working with other species they'll they'll slowly transition to other species um, there was an article the other day about uh, on one of the seafood channels about uh, a big company evergreen switched their tilapia processing plant to processing snakehead uh, so there is the opportunity to switch to other species for these companies and they will continue to do that so if they if if these farms switch to other species i'm just trying to wrap my head around this and just understand how it works are they switching to species that are not targeting trade into the exactly. u.s okay they will, target, they will do species uh that will primarily focus on the domestic market for china okay Okay. It, that'll have short-term success in terms of they'll have a market for their products, but uh, the price tends to be lower for a lot of those type of species. So, uh, you know, profitability-wise, they'll struggle. If the tilapia markets recover through a change in administration or if, or if we have a, an end to the trade war, um, if tilapia markets recover in the U.S., you'll see producers go back to doing tilapia and you'll see tilapia return to, to the supply chain. You know, they'll be fairly flexible to the point where they can. Where you would have challenges are with farmers who shut down their business and go on to do something else. Yeah. Once that farming land is lost in China, it won't be reclaimed. Hmm. So if you had one message that you want to get across to consumers, whether it's in the U.S. or anywhere else in the world, what would it be about tilapia? It's a great product. It's a healthy product. It's a great product. If you're looking at something to feed your family and something healthy to feed your family. It's almost a perfect fish in terms of it doesn't have a strong flavor. Uh, it has a very good nutritional profile. You know, what has made sloppy, I think, so successful in, in North America in the past is the fact that you can make it taste like whatever you want it to taste like. Yeah, we mentioned that too. it's like yeah. the tofu of seafood. <laughs> exactly. Um, and that especially dealing with you know feeding seafood to kids for those of you who have kids you know how challenging it can be and if you can make a tilapia dish taste like something that your kids are familiar with and willing to eat they're going to be far more likely to eat that than they would you know something that has a real strong fish taste that maybe they don't like yeah or smell it doesn't really smell fishy at all either when you're exactly. cooking it 
It's funny, after we had the call with Denise, well, not the call, she was in the room with us, <laughs> but <laughs> after we spoke with Denise, the next day I came home and my mother-in-law was at my house and she was making dinner for us. And she's like, I found this great recipe for fish tacos with tilapia. I'm wondering if it's the same one that came out that you were talking about. Yeah, it was delicious. It was battered with panko and it was, it was really good. Yeah, and um, that's, you know, we talked about marketing efforts and what, you know, what could be done and just getting more information out like that. That type of targeted marketing is not super expensive. You think about traditional ad campaign, you're looking at tens of millions of dollars, but now people don't even trust those traditional marketing campaigns anymore. People are much more likely to find something on social media and trust that than they are to trust a company that's putting in 10, $20 million in a marketing campaign. So it's something that producers could come together with a small amount of money and effectively market their products. Which is almost too bad because that's how a lot of the negative headlines and the fear mongering and the misconceptions get spread so quickly, like rapid fire, uh, which we're getting a little low on time, but I want to see what your take is on some of these misconceptions and why they're so widespread uh, surrounding tilapia. We, We heard Denise's opinion on that and we talked about some of the myths and why they're kind of BS, but I uh, <laughs> wanted to get your point. Do you have any that stick out in your mind that you hear about people talking about tilapia that you want to clear up? Oh, uh, yeah. I don't know. I want to repeat all the ones I've heard. Like, <laughs> uh, you'll, you'll see them if you go online, but why do those get captured and, and, and why do people want to believe those? And I think it goes back to some data I saw a couple years ago about who people trust. And when people are going and looking for information, who they trust, they trust their family and friends. They saw a report a couple of years ago that people are three times more likely to trust information from their family and friends than they are from experts in the field. Uh, so if wow. you look at where that information is being shared, it's being shared on social media. When you go on Facebook, if your friend shares a negative article, oh, hey, my friend shared that, this must mean something. Or if my or if my cousin shared that, or my brother shared that, that must mean something. I, I, I should listen to this. Yeah. Um, mm. So I think that is the biggest thing behind this, is we have changed how we digest information. Unfortunately, for whatever reason, the people who share negative information latched onto that quicker than those of us who are trying to share positive information. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny because I, you, that's absolutely right. You know, you, you see something shared by someone that you know and trust and your first instinct is to dive right in and believe it until it's something that you know more about. Exactly. And you know that the information that you have in your head is correct and this is wrong. And then all of a sudden it's, it causes this big troll war uh, with attacking each other online and, and having on, you know, online arguments, but oh, you don't I've, think I've, about I've, it with I've all the other things that, that you follow. It, it, yeah, yeah I, I can relate, but, you know, <laughs> but to your point, Sean, think about how many people out there know about seafood. The percentage is minuscule. So exactly. See those headlines. What reason do they have not to believe them? Yeah, exactly. So that's interesting. And and not just with seafood. I mean, things like climate change, you know, it it gets that. I'd love to see that article that you read. I don't know if you can track that down again, but about how people, who people believe, because it it amazes me when I talk to people who are deniers of climate change and things like that. And I just, or, or vaccines, stuff like that. It's like, these people are scientists. They devoted years and years (laughs) to go to school to study this. And, and they're just trying to help move 
the uh, species forward. So why don't you believe them? But you know, people are more likely to believe their their crazy uncle who says that it's a it's all a conspiracy. You know. Well, and it takes some effort to determine what you believe is is the truth i mean the easy button is oh my friend posted this so i'm gonna believe this <laughs> and then there's like you said sean you can listen to an expert but i even go a step further and i listen to multiple experts mm-hmm. and see because sometimes they take different approaches and then you exactly. kind of try to find where the middle ground is and then you just kind of have to make your own informed decision the key word is informed yeah mm-hmm. yeah but we all have that crazy uncle don't we yeah, yeah. <laughs> i got yeah. two of them <laughs> no, it's the it's it's making an informed decision, not making a not listening told to decision. You know, mm-hmm. so awesome. Hey, anything else you want to get out there about tilapia? You know, this is this has been really interesting. I think people getting a, an insight for how it works and how this fish is affecting people's lives. Yes, yep. on the farmer level, you know, when you go buy that, like you said, when you go buy that bag of frozen tilapia, you're helping out a uh, mother, father and kids make a living so i think that was really really powerful for people to hear how it works and how these recent acts by a uh, foot stamping government <laughs> has been affecting those people so um so thank you so much for having us on if there's anything else that you want to get out there yeah no thanks guys i i enjoy having the chance to do this uh getting the chance to represent some of my friends that I've been working with for a long time and I tell their story as much as I can. I would encourage any of your listeners who ever had the opportunity to travel, uh, especially to Asia, take the time to visit some of these farms if you ever have that chance. I started doing this about 10 years ago now when I first got my chance to visit some of these farms in Asia. And, you know, I I think it it definitely changed my life and got me to come and, and pursue a career now and that's why I'm here and what I'm doing. And getting the chance to sit down and, and talk to the people who are actually doing this in, in these other countries is it can be a life-changing event so i would encourage anyone who has the opportunity to take it i would agree it's it's totally life-changing it, it opens up your eyes and it makes you realize that when you think about countries or places or people that are on the other side of the world like you know you almost think of them as more of a, an object or like the other or that it's this is this is nothing that's going to affect me it's not real I, I i have my picture of what it is but it's almost like a movie to me when you go there and you see it firsthand you realize like oh these are people just like me this is a, a country just like mine and they're just doing what they do and i do what i do and and it really opens your eyes to that and i would agree with you i think i think that that's really important to immerse yourself in some of that culture. So Yeah, and another aspect is it's also nice to know where your food comes from and meet the people that are behind the packaged foods that are just sitting in your grocery store. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around the fact that it was like it didn't just magically appear in the grocery store. There was a whole chain, a supply mm. chain that got it to where it is to oh, for you to definitely. get. And, and I can tell you when I visited these farms all around the world, the first thing they want to do is feed you. <laughs> They're so <laughs> proud of their product. They want to cook it for you and, and, and give it to you right there on the farm. I can't tell you how many meals I've had on the farm all around the world with proud farmers. And it's it's just a, it's a great moment. The language barrier might be there, but you know, you're always traveling with somebody who can interpret for you. But food is universal. And when you're eating yeah. that food and you have that smile on your face because you're eating something that tastes delicious, and you see that farmer smile back at you because you enjoy the products that they're raising. Uh, that's just a, it's a great experience. It's a great feeling. 
everybody eats. Maddie, to your point, actually, the, you know, talking about the the packaged products in the grocery, I think people tend to gravitate towards, you know, fresh stuff that they see that's not in packaging, that's in the refrigerator, or it's in more of a temporary package like you'd get from a butcher shop. But, um, and I think when people look at something that's in a, a sealed bag with all kinds of logos on it and, and imagery imagery or in boxes and in cans and stuff, you know, I feel like their mind stops at the plant level. Like the, they look back and they just picture this factory production line. Yeah. With a big production line of, of just this mystery food stuff that's getting into a sealed bag and then getting shipped out in boxes. But you know, you got to think, okay, this is a an animal product. So maybe it was on a belt going into a, a production line. But before then, it was being cut by someone with a knife. <laughs> and then before that, it was being harvested by someone with a net. And before that, it was swimming around in a pond. And, you know, this is, it's real. It's real product. It's real food. It's not something that was just built in a factory. And I yeah, think that's you know, that's another message to try to get amazing, out there, Sean. Because, and I know we're really getting on time now, but uh, you know, when you look at where seafood is held and what people, you know, where they the accountability level people want to hold seafood to compared to all other food, it's mind-boggling to me. Go and look up food safety scares in the United States and see where food safety health problems have come from. Almost none of them are seafood, other than you know, you've had some issues with some of the shellfish toxins until we had much better monitoring programs. But seafood in general, you almost never have a health scare. You almost never have any type of outbreak. It's, it's almost always with other, you know, other type of meat products or vegetables. Leafy yep, greens, absolutely. yeah, leafy greens yep. are the big one, yep. I feel And like. yet seafood just seems to be held to this level of, oh, it's not safe, it's not safe. And I don't understand it. I don't understand how seafood <laughs> got put at that higher <laughs> expectation level than all other food. And maybe it's because so much of our seafood is imported and people are maybe a little more wary of that. I'm, I don't know. But there aren't big health concerns with seafood. There aren't these major outbreaks of sicknesses because of seafood. Seafood is a safe product. And especially seafood that's being imported to the U.S., the processing plants where that seafood is being prepared are among the best in the world. I've, I've toured these processing plants. And oh, yeah. They're spotless. Yeah, exactly. You have a hard time finding a processing plant anywhere in North America that is superior to those. They're really, really excellent plants. Yeah. Well, we're trying to change that perception. So, um, and Steve, you're definitely a seafood expert, especially in the Asia market. And I bet there may be some of our listeners that may want to reach out to you if they have questions or comments. Are you comfortable if we put either your email address? I mean, yeah. what are you comfortable with for a contact? Yeah, just so can you put, can the put my notes. email on there and I'm happy to talk to whoever. If anyone has any questions, happy to talk to them. Are you on social media too? Yeah, email's probably better. All right. <laughs> you don't want to start a troll war with Steve, believe me. <laughs> you will lose. <laughs> Awesome. Well, again, Steve Hart, Vice President GAA, uh, helping with the development of the Asian markets over there. And we really appreciate you coming on and talking to us. We always enjoy talking with you. And when will we see you again? Well, we have a staff meeting in July, so I'll see you at that. All right. We'll see you then. All right. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you so much, Steve. Have a great day. Thanks, Steve. Bye. 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 (laughs) 
Folks, that was our talk with Steve Hart. I hope you really enjoyed it. I know I got a lot out of it, and I'm sure you guys did too. Absolutely. Totally. So remember, this does not mean that the tilapia industry is completely going down the drains and we should stop eating it and stop supporting it. I think, if anything else, eat more of it. You know, the prices might go up a little bit, but it'll probably still be more affordable than a lot of the other comparable whitefish out there. Yeah, that's something we didn't really get into, is that even though the prices might be going up a little bit, it's still a very cheap it's there's still, still a lot of unknowns the price could stay yeah, the same in another a year from now um but even if it does creep up there because of what's going on politically it's still going to be a very inexpensive and very tasty fish option for for people yeah. yeah and i hope that you know this was this is the end of our tilapia species spotlight but we're gonna have we're having this whole month is we're releasing a lot of information about tilapia on our other platforms in the blog and some other press releases and things like that. So this is a, a part of that because, you know, tilapia is a big part of the industry and it, it could really be a game changer for a lot of people in regards to their health and their budgets and things like that. And, and people just need to understand the truth behind it. So I hope you took something out of this. I hope you learned something. And if you want to learn more, look at the show notes, look at some of our other resources or talk to us directly and we can connect you with people that can answer some of your questions. So you guys good with tilapia? Anything else before we wrap up? No, I just... I hope our listeners listen through the complete episodes because there's a lot of information there. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. Again, I'm Sean O'Loughlin. And I'm Justin Grant. And I'm Maddie Cassidy. Have a good one.